thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We have long known that CPAP isn't meant for everyone. There are plenty of non-PAP options, such as oral appliance therapy or hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Pharmacotherapy has been used as an adjunct therapy to treat persistent hypersomnolence despite well-treated obstructive sleep apnea, or perhaps to assist with PAP acclimatization. There are medications that are being developed that aim to treat the underlying obstruction and obstructive sleep apnea. Here to help us navigate through these medications is Dr. Sanjay Patel. Dr. Patel is a sleep physician who directs a clinical sleep program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He is a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh, where he directs the Center for Sleep and Cardiovascular Outcomes Research. By way of full disclosure, he is a paid consultant for Apnamed and also consulted for Bayer. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. So we've heard about these medications, right, over the years that are being developed to treat obstructive sleep apnea. Um, and there's a few, right? So I'm wondering, can you walk us through them? You know, like, what are they? How do they work? What are the side effects? Sure. So, yeah, this is a really exciting time because there's um, there's really a bunch of new medications that are being evaluated and, and are serious contenders for um, getting FDA approval for the treatment of sleep apnea. Um, so maybe the one that's gotten the most attention is... Um, a drug combination combining atomoxetine and oxybutynin. Um, and basically that um, combination of using an adrenergic agonist with uh, uh, anticholinergic um, has gotten a lot of um, sort of uh, people interested because the belief is that using that combination, you might be able to increase sort of muscle tone in the upper airway dilator muscles at night. Um, we know that at night there's decreased noradrenergic tone in non-REM sleep while there's sort of cholinergic inhibition in REM sleep. And so the belief is if you combine those two classes, you might be able to um, treat sleep apnea in both non-REM and REM sleep. Mm. The, the, the other um, advantage of that sort of combination is that you know, most of the noradrenergic agonists are sort of stimulants. And so giving that at night might cause insomnia. Well, that's but, it. That's what I was wondering. Right. I'm like, well, I wonder if your sleep yeah. is really fragmented with this. Yeah. And so, you know, to some extent, the anticholinergic, because that's a sedating drug, might minimize that um, side effect. Um, and so that's another rationale for maybe combining the two mm. classes of drugs. And so there's a number of, of drug combinations that have been trialed. The one that um, sort of has been the most exciting is this atomoxetine and either oxybutynin or there's an R sort of stereoisomer called R-oxybutynin. Mm. Um, and there's a study um, published in 2019 where they show just comparing one night on the drug combination versus one night on placebo. Um, with the drug, the AHI dropped by 63%. Holy smokes. Yeah. And so it was a large, consistent um, reduction. And they did a smaller sub-study where they looked at um, additional nights with just the atomoxetine or just the oxybutynin. And each drug on its own really didn't make much of a difference. But when you combine the two, you saw a big 
um, effect. And so that so was the, that was one night, though, right? That was just one night. Um, and there's been a lot of different studies. There was actually a meta-analysis that looked at all combinations of adrenergic and anticholinergic that have been tried. And the overall effect was sort of the AHI dropped by about 11 events per hour. The one study I told you, the AHI dropped by 23. And so there's a lot of heterogeneity, and it seems like maybe it depends on which specific drug you use. Um, so this adamoxetine and um, either oxybutynin or aroxybutynin seems to have larger effects than other adrenergic or anticholinergic combinations. Interesting. Um, yeah. So there's been a phase two trial where um, people were treated for longer to see, you know, does this effect actually hold up for more than a, uh, a night? And so this trial that was presented at the ATS meeting last May and is currently sort of in review for publication um, randomized people to four weeks of treatment. And what they found in that trial, um, which is now adamoxetine and aroxybutynin, is that um, they saw about a 50% reduction in AHI in the active drug group compared to about 20% reduction in placebo. Um, and combined with that, at least in the one dose um, that one of the doses trialed, there was an improvement in sort of fatigue scores the next day. Um, so it did seem to have symptomatic improvement um, as well in patients. Well, it's kind of interesting that there was a 20% improvement in placebo. Yeah, I think some of that is just um, sort of regression to the mean and that you needed to have an AHI above a certain threshold to get in the study. And, oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and so that 20% reduction is really only um, going from 20 to 16, so it wasn't a oh, huge fair. change. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So four um, weeks, is that the longest trial? So that's that's the longest trial so far. There's a phase three trial that just got started in the past month that's going to be looking at treating people for a year. Um, and so that's going to be one of the um, two phase three trials that the FDA wants to be able to approve the drug for use. Huh. When you're looking at these trials, then, is it just AHI? Is that the primary endpoint? Um, I heard you also say sort of fatigue. So is that like an Epworth or is that some other metric? Yeah, so this, the scale they used is um, uh, it, it's a fatigue score, the PROMISE fatigue scale. And the okay. PROMISE instruments are a bunch of instruments developed by the NIH that are really um, – really well developed by psychometric experts to make sure they're understandable to a wide range of people, right? You don't have to have a college education to understand or read them. And they really make sense. And they've done a lot of careful analysis to say these things really are measuring what we think they measure. Okay. Um, but as you said, I think one of the concerns, most of the studies that have been done with pharmacotherapy have really focused on the AHI improvement. And the problem is we don't actually have great data that improvement in AHI correlates with an improvement in symptoms. Right. And so we need to be a little bit careful about thinking that we've cured someone by making their AHI lower. <laughs> well, that's it, right? That brings us back to, you know, sort of the CPAP, you know, data. And, and I think this is just something that we, we talk about all the time, don't we? that we say, well, maybe maybe the HI isn't the best metric, but we don't really have a, a better 
one right now, right? It's sort of a, you have to look at a bunch of different metrics. Right, right. No, that's exactly the problem is right now, you know, we use AHI to define who has disease, but the change in AHI, we don't really know what that means because mm -hmm. CPAP just, you know, it overwhelms you. You take, you, you go from an AHI of 60 to zero. Well, you know, you can't really use that delta because that's not going to really vary from person to person. Um, but if you look at people with dental appliances or other treatments that are, you know, have yeah. sort of a bigger range of how much the AHI changes, that's where you can study, does the change in different metric actually predict a symptomatic response? Um, and we need more work on that to say what is the best way to sort of what's the best metric to, yeah. to predict who's actually um, getting better. So the medication you were talking about, that's the Apnomed one, right? Right. So that's um, being developed by a company called Apnomed. Okay. So what are the other ones? Yeah. So there's another um, um, class of studies related to dronabinol, which is sort of a a medical version of, of THC, um, the sort of active chemical in marijuana. Um, and dronabinol was developed as a medical treatment, as FDA approved back in the 80s for treating um, end-stage AIDS patients with cachexia and anorexia to help them gain weight. Um, but Dave Carley, who was at um, University of Illinois in Chicago, spent a lot of time studying its effects on control of breathing. And um, he had evidence in sort of rodent models that um, there are sort of cannabinoid receptors um, in the nodose ganglion of, um, of the vagus that sort of modulate um, the vagal afferents and control of breathing as a result. And he showed in animal models, you could reduce central apneas by using dronabinol. Huh. Um, their group did a small study um, back in 2018 where they gave dronabinol to patients with um, sleep apnea. And it sort of had mixed results. They treated people for six weeks. And what they found was with the high-dose dronabinol, there was a net improvement in AHI of 13 events compared to controls, which sounds... Um, pretty exciting until um, you look closer and you see that in the placebo group, um, patients got worse by uh, eight events per hour. Huh. While with the drug, they got better by five, which is less impressive. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. But the flip side of that is when they looked at the Epworth score, um, the Epworth score improved a lot. It was about one and a half points in the control group, and it was close to four points with the dronabinol, so a net improvement of over two points, mm. which you know is not that far off from what CPAP does. So this is this is interesting. You know, I live in Minnesota, and medical marijuana is approved to treat obstructive sleep apnea, and I think it was based on the dronabinol data. So is this a leap? I mean, is there data to support this? So. You know, I think the problem with, you know, medical marijuana or marijuana that you buy through a dispensary or something is is that it really is a combination of many different chemicals and not just THC. And so we don't really know what's in there. And also a lot of people smoke or vape. And so there's, you know, potential airway inflammation caused mm -hmm. by that. And so the overall effect of taking, you know, sort of 
marijuana um, on the airway and on sleep apnea is not really known. There's not been any controlled studies. There have been studies on sleep in general, and and you know the ASM has has published a statement saying we really don't know that there's any benefit right. of this. I think the best data out there related to sleep is that for people who have sleep disturbance because of chronic pain um, related to cancer, um, medical marijuana can help improve the pain and therefore help people sleep. But otherwise, we just don't have any data and really need more studies before we're recommending this as sort of a, um, you know, a first line treatment, especially for sleep apnea. And so you're, you're sort of talking about cancer pain and, and helping to prove, improve sleep quality, but not to treat sleep apnea. Right. I, I think, you know, it may be that orally taken THC may have effects and, and there are, you know, a, a number of studies looking at that. Um, there have been a couple of studies looking at combinations. Um, there's a study combining atomoxetine with dronabinol that that study didn't really show any change in AHI, but it did show that people were, they had um, less daytime sleepiness and less fatigue um, with the combination of atomoxetine and dronabinol. And it was, you know, tended to be greater than just the atomoxetine alone. So again, um, there's some benefit of that. There's mm. another study combining acetazolamide with dronabinol that showed, you know, the AHI improved by about 15 events per hour compared to placebo. And so there's actually a, a company that's now trying to develop um, a combination of acetazolamide dronabinol for FDA approval um, to treat sleep apnea. And they're setting up a phase two uh, um, slash three trial. So what about acetazolamide alone? Yeah, so there's been a lot of studies over the years um, because acetazolamide has been around for so long Mm -hmm. um, that have looked at what the effect of acetazolamide is on the AHI in both obstructive sleep apnea and central sleep apnea patients. We know what that acetazolamide sort of stabilizes ventilatory control, lowers loop gain. And so to the extent that loop gain is a contributor to sleep disorder breathing, it should make the AHI go down. And and there's lots of evidence to show it does. The big problem is that there's not any good evidence to show that it improves sleepiness or other symptoms. Oh, okay. Okay. So is this acetazolamide sort of by itself or are there other carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that might work? Yeah, so there's um, a related carbonic anhydrase inhibitor called sulfiam. That's a drug that's not available in the United States, but it is approved in Europe for certain forms of pediatric epilepsy. And so there was a trial um, a couple of years ago using sulfiam in obstructive sleep apnea patients. Um, And what they found was a pretty large effect on um, the AHI. And it was very consistent. Um, so it was pretty exciting from that standpoint. The problem, again, is when they looked at symptoms, there was no improvement in sleepiness or um, mm. other sort of sleep apnea-related symptoms. Nevertheless, the company was pretty excited about the large effect on um, the AHI. Um, 
it was about a 40% reduction in AHI. And so they're now planning um, phase two and three, a sort of a com- combined phase two, three trial of sulthium. Huh. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about medications being developed to treat obstructive sleep apnea. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Prepare for the future of sleep medicine at Sleep Medicine Disruptors 2023, November 3rd through 4th. This hybrid course will provide a unique and virtual learning experience, exploring the disruptive innovations altering the healthcare and sleep medicine landscape. Registrants can attend either virtually or in person at the Ameswell Hotel in Silicon Valley, California. Register today at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Sanjay Patel about medications that are being developed to treat obstructive sleep apnea. So when we chatted earlier, we talked about these medications, but then you also brought up anti-obesity medications. Is this part of what you consider medical management of sleep apnea? Yeah, I think increasingly um, this is going to become an important part of managing sleep apnea. Um, There's just been such great advances in treating obesity that I think we need to um, start to get familiar as sleep physicians on the use of these drugs. Um, You know, about 10 years ago, most of the obesity medicines didn't really have a very big effect. It maybe helped you lose 10 pounds, something like that. Um, but with some of the newer drugs that keep coming out, specifically the incretins that um, act on GLP-1 and GIP, mm-hmm. these are drugs that were developed originally for treating um, type 2 diabetes, but they were found to help lose weight too. Um, an early one was liraglutide that you know, produced about, um, you know, a net, maybe 15 pound weight loss. And there's been some studies on using that in sleep apnea, and it really doesn't do a whole lot because you're not mm-hmm. losing a whole lot of weight. Um, but since then, um, we now have semaglutide, you know, Zempic, um, and terzepatide or Manjaro. Um, and these are, these produce much larger um, reductions in weight. We're talking about getting to, you know, um, with uh, semaglutide, we're, we're talking about 25 kilograms or about 50 pounds, Holy 60 pounds. And then with the terzepatide or Manjaro, we're really talking about 80 to 100 pounds potentially of weight loss. Um, and then there's a new drug that was just um, uh, had paper published in the New England Journal uh, a month ago, um, retitrutide, which... Um, had even bigger weight loss over 100 pounds. And so with these drugs, I think it's hard to um, believe that there isn't going to be improvement in sleep apnea if you can get people to lose and maintain a 100-pound weight loss. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe about a year ago, I was at a conference and a bariatric surgeon spoke to us about how we as sleep physicians really should be more comfortable with these medications like the GLP medications. Um, And she really talked about how impressed she was by these, like you're describing these really significant results. Um, And so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, we had one of our colleagues does obesity medicine and um, he does sort of the, you know, dietitian and really kind of, 
does a really nice job treating obesity. And so I'm wondering when you talk about that we should become familiar with these medications, is your idea that we would sort of take on obesity management or would we sort of recommend that they go to their primary? I mean, what does that look like for a sleep physician? Yeah, I think it's probably going to depend on where you practice. Um, if you're in an academic tertiary care place, I can say our sleep clinic, for example, at the University of Pittsburgh, we're one floor above the um, weight loss clinic. Okay. So it's really easy for me to just say, hey, on your way out of here, stop uh, you know, on the third floor and, and ask them for an appointment to see the weight loss doctors rather than me doing it. But okay. I think if you're in a place where, you know, you don't have ready access to um, weight loss collaborators, then it probably makes sense for you to try to develop that expertise in your own clinical program. A lot of the things that we do are very similar to what the weight loss people do, right? We do a lot of behavioral interventions, mm. get people to be comfortable with CPAP or treat their insomnia. And that's very similar to the diet and exercise interventions. Um, I think the one area that may require us to take a much greater uh, ownership of this is um, when we try to predict what the prior authorization yeah. issues are going to be like, um, there's a big phase three trial going on right now with terzepatide Manjaro as a treatment for sleep apnea. The study has already recruited all the patients. They're now just following them up and finishing follow-up for a year. That's going to finish this spring. Hmm. And if those results are positive, they'll be going to the FDA for approval for an indication for sleep apnea. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's pretty likely that um, the insurance companies are going to say, you know, we're not going to approve this for obesity. They certainly haven't approved it for obesity yet. But yes, we will approve it for sort of sleep apnea if you've failed CPAP or other cheaper treatment options. Interesting. Yeah, our our colleague, Dr. Rafael Sepulveda, was talking about how he spends a lot of time with insurance <laughs> trying to get medications yeah. approved. Um, so that's really interesting that this is specifically for sleep apnea. It It reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody from ResMed who said that they are keeping their eye on this trial that you've described and these other, these medications. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be a game changer, right? Because I mm. think a lot of patients who maybe weren't interested in CPAP and so stayed away, even though they knew they had symptoms, they wouldn't come see us in sleep clinic because they were scared we were going to just hand them a mask. Yeah. If they know, hey, there's a drug that I can use to treat my sleep apnea that will also help me lose weight, they're going to be more excited to come. And there may even be people who don't want to treat their sleep apnea and just lose weight. And But they come saying, can you diagnose with me sleep apnea so I can lose weight? So I can qualify. Yeah. No, I get right. that. I get that. So, so <laughs> how far away are we from having a medication to treat sleep apnea? Yeah. So... Um, the terzepatide trial, like I said, should have results out by April. Um, so if it's positive, presumably by the end of 2024, um, the FDA may act on that drug. The um, atomoxetine or oxybutynin um, trials have already started and, you know, would expect that they'd be done by sort of 2025. Mm. And so you know, we're really talking in the next year or two, we should be having um, multiple drugs potentially available. 
So that's really exciting, right? Like we're not talking about 10 years. We're talking about like in the near term. Exactly. I think it, it's a really exciting time. So when we talk about medications, is the intent for them to be PAP alternatives or is it kind of like when we do hybrid therapy with an oral appliance and we want to reduce the PAP, you know, the sort of the pressure requirements? Yeah, I think um, it's it's probably going to vary to some extent. Um, but certainly, I think the combination, you know, combining a drug with a dental appliance or combining two drugs um, may be viable options for many patients. Um, but it may also be that a patient feels like I'm never going to use CPAP. So yeah. just, you know, give me this one drug and, you know, I get most of my, you know, fatigue treated and that's good enough for me. So how do you know which one to choose? Yeah. So I think we're still a long way off from that point, right? We don't have any drugs yet, but presumably in the next five years, we'll be thinking about how do we choose the right drug for the right patient. Right. And that's going to be a really exciting time for sleep medicine because, you know, thus far, for the most part, we haven't had to be very smart. Patient comes in, <laughs> we hand him a sleep <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but we, if we have to actually try to choose the right treatment for the right patient, um, it, it'll become much more exciting, I think. Um, and how we do that, I think, is, is going to need to be an active area of research. There's uh, many different ways you could go about trying to do this, potentially. Um, one area that's gotten a lot of interest is saying, you know, can we sort of endotype the patients and using their endotype? predict what drug is going to or, or treatment is going to work best for patients. Um, I think that um, that data so far that that strategy will work is, is not there yet mm. in that a lot of um, a lot of times the results have been sort of paradoxical that you find that a patient has whatever high loop gain, um, but then a drug that lowers loop gain is not the best drug for them. It turns out, oh, a drug that increases um, muscle tone is a better drug for huh. that. Um, and so, you know, people can sort of secondhand try to, ar you know, argue about why that makes sense. But um, none of these studies have actually been replicated. They tend to be relatively small studies because you have, you know, four different endotypes. So um, you have all sorts of different combinations. And so even if you start with 100 people, you end up with very small groups. Um, and so what we really need is multiple studies where we can say, oh, we discovered something, now let's try this in a new population to say, is it really true that you know um, a high loop gain will respond to a dental appliance uh -huh. or to atomoxetine or whatever? Um, so, you know, that work needs to be done. Um, it should be fairly easy to do once we have the medications in, approved. Um, but another option, you know, is that we just look at the patient preferences, what their symptoms are, and what the side effect profiles mm -hmm. of the drugs are, and, you know, make decisions based on, um, you know, this person has, his primary symptom is that he's waking up a lot at night. So that's probably not someone we want to give out amoxetine to because that's going to yeah. cause problems. 
um, while you know someone else who's mostly sleepy, well, atomoxetine may be good in that person. Um, and similarly with the side effect profiles, you want to avoid um, worsening patients. And you know, to some extent, I think that's how we sort of pick drugs in hypertension or diabetes. So that may be the best way to do things in sleep apnea too. Mm. I think we just have to wait and see. So I'm glad you brought up endotyping because I know you have strong opinions on it. <laughs> so what is your concern about OSA endotyping? Yeah, I think, uh, again, one of the major concerns for me is that we need to be careful in defining what sleep apnea is, right? The ICSD has a definition of sleep apnea that involves having symptoms as well as an elevated AHI. Um, most of the studies out there just use an elevated AHI, and we know that anywhere from a third to half of people with an elevated AHI are asymptomatic. Mm. And often in these trials, you're sort of picking professional research subjects rather than patients. And so we don't really know whether the results we get are relevant to patients that we see in clinic or are just sort of, you know, people with a high AHI who like making money off of research studies. <laughs> so where do you think these medications are, are going to live? So what I'm thinking is, you know, a lot of primary care docs are doing Manjaro and Ozempic, right? So yeah. will they start scripting medications instead of CPAP? Or is this something that they will send to sleep? Or wh where are these going to live? Yeah, so I think I think, there are two factors that are going to affect how this plays out. One is the insurance companies and the prior authorization. Ah. And so if, you know, you need a sleep study or you need proof that you failed CPAP or whatever, then, you know, it's probably going to fall on sleep medicine physicians to write the Manjaro because we're going to know how to get it approved for a sleep apnea indication and the PCP isn't going to really know how to handle all of that. Um, the, you know, while if it's relatively easy to get, then I think the PCPs, you know, they know how to write a prescription. That's easy. Right. The other part of it though, is also sort of how many medications there are. Um, if there's only one or two medications, then I think a PCP can understand if my patient has a BMI of 40, I'll give them Manjaro. If it's lower than that, then I'll try the atomoxetine. Um, but if we have you know, multiple drugs, if we have the dronabinol, acetazolamide combination or other drugs, and, and you really have to think about um, how to choose the right drug for the right patient, then again, I think that's going to become uh, a scenario where the sleep physicians really needs to be involved. Huh. So how, how should we prepare for this? Where do we go from here? <laughs> um, you know, I think um, we just need to make sure we're we're staying abreast of, of what these FDA um, trials are showing and understand what the um, side effect profiles and who are the right patients mm. to get the drug and who are the patients who are going to have bad side effects and so are not candidates for, you know, incretins or whatever. Um, to some extent, you know, a, a lot of these drugs are already out there. You can, you know, you can prescribe um, Manjaro or, or 
um, semaglutide for patients with diabetes. And so it's probably useful to talk to our patients who are already on these medicines and learn a little bit from them on what side effects they're having from those. So we are more comfortable when, you know, maybe our turn to start prescribing them. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So any final thoughts? No, I think it's just a super exciting time to, to, you know, it looks like we're finally at that point. People have been talking about it for decades that we may be able to move beyond CPAP. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us better understand how pharmacotherapy can be used to treat obstructive sleep apnea. Thanks so much. This is really great. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well. <laughs>